Slow Burn Media, an evergreen podcast, presents Who Killed, a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. As far as we know, the children's Tylenol, the chewable, have not been implicated yet. Exactly what is going on right now, they're just assuming that it could be the cyanide lace capsule also. The phone has been ringing off the hook at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. It's the regional poison control center for the entire Chicago area. Poison specialist Lane Olaf. Oh, we've been receiving calls uh, about once every 15 seconds. At Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's, we only have three poison lines, and they're lit up constantly ever since yesterday morning. Right now, they're telling people which lots of Tylenol are known to have contaminated capsules and checking to see if callers have displayed any symptoms of cyanide poisoning. If uh, they have it, tell them to go in the emergency room. If they don't have that and they took it yesterday, we just tell them, you're, you're probably going to have no problem with it. Just hold on to the bottles. Don't take any Tylenol extra strength for the time being until you hear otherwise. Most of what's going on here is informational. Officials here say right. if anyone has taken a cyanide laced Tylenol capsule, well, they, they probably wouldn't be able to make it to the phone to call. They used to I'm Jeff Locke, CNN, at Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Medical Center in Chicago. Hello and welcome to episode 205 of Who Killed? I am your host, Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media, Killer Podcasts, and Evergreen Podcast production. On this week's episode, we're going to wrap up our conversation with the hosts of Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. They are Christy Gutowski and Stacey St. Clair, investigative reporters for the one and only Chicago Tribune. And they were kind enough to join Who Killed to discuss their podcast and the crazy case that you guys all know of the Tylenol murders and some of the new evidence that has sort of come to light in the months of their investigation. So join me as we wrap up this conversation. And again, thanks so much for tuning in. We know that there was a we know there was a 40 mile area that um, the stores uh, on a map. So someone could drive sure. uh, to them. The belief is that they were that this happened at the on the retail end of it, not in distri- in the distribution part. Um, that somebody actually uh, put the tainted bottles on the on the store shelves. So they they looked at this, and it would be very hard to do from public transportation based on where some of the stores were located. But their belief is that it could be one person, it could be more. You know, we'll never really know that until they until they solve this case or someone confesses and there's been talk, could there be a deathbed confession after 40 years? But um, there's not a lot of belief that that would happen. Whoever did this is either dead or alive and um, either proud of whatever reason, um, glad that they got away with it and isn't going to make a deathbed confession. As far as Lewis goes, I mean, have they looked, and I'm sure they have, but could that have been a... Bonnie and Clyde type of thing, you know, uh, uh, partner partners in crime. Hey, you go put these on the shelf. They and... have. They have always acted as if Lewis um, acted alone has been their theory. They have. Uh, he has been married for um, many decades to the same woman, Leanne Lewis. She has never been charged uh, with any wrongdoing. Never been accused of that they've, they've um, you know, interviewed her over the years or tried to interview her, but um, the person that they've always sought was, was James Lewis alone. Yeah, uh, Stacy, we lost you there for a second, but we were just talking about how um, 
you know, I kind of posed, posed the question of if this could have been more than one person. Christy pretty much answered it, but if did you have any thoughts on that? No, I, I she and I are pretty lockstep. So here we are. We're in a major metropolitan city. We now have the biggest uh, domestic terrorist attack at this point in time. And what is the reaction and how does Johnson and Johnson move forward at this point? So Johnson and Johnson, um, about a week after the murders pulled all of their capsules from store shelves. And it was the first time a product had been recalled on a, a mass scale like that. We're used to it now, right? We get lettuce recalled. You know, I think we've, you know, milk recalled all the time. This is the first time a company had said, we're taking all of it back. And it, it stunned both consumers and Wall Street. Um, it, it's, it's stock price dropped. Uh, the market share, which we just talked about was 37%. It dropped to 7%. And people were predicting that, that Tylenol wasn't going to survive as a, as a brand name. And we, we like to say that, you know, the, the executives, they gathered that first morning and they had no idea what to do. And they needed crisis management. This was a crisis and it needed to be managed. But that term didn't exist at the time. And, and they pretty much invented it. And now it's become the stuff of almost, you know, it's taught in colleges on how to handle this, this crisis. And, and what they did is they, they took everything back they offered um the tablet form in exchange and then within six weeks they came back with this tamper tamper evident packaging that has become the norm uh and has become law actually uh, it's another law to that, that that came out of this case and they won back the consumer's trust uh, it cost them a hundred million dollars in 1982 mm -hmm. uh, terms, which is you know significant. Mm -hmm. But they they said they they did it by trying to be as as transparent with the public as possible. That you know that the packaging needed to improve, and it and it did. And then they offered you know coupons to like you know get people to buy it again and. People just really bought into their message. And by the fall of 1983, it was back at number one uh, in terms of a market share, which is, is just incredible. And it's still around today. I, I'm not sure a, a brand could survive today no. if that happened. No, no, they would have been. Yeah, go ahead, Christy. We interviewed the chairman at the time of uh, McNeil Consumer Products, which is a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson, uh, the maker of Tylenol. And he, uh, Dave Collins, said that uh, he got emotional uh, several times with Stacey and I during our three-hour interview with him. He said that there was a, a point where they talked about changing the name of Tylenol. And it was just uh, Irish... Pride, stubborn pride uh, that they refused to do it and uh, you know worked out well for them you know when you're going through journalism school and journalism classes or whatever you're doing if you're into that field you always come across this case and that's you know it's just 
uh, you know, maybe in a PR class that you come across as a marketing class. Uh, but like, like you said, crisis management didn't exist really at all back then. I mean, sure, there were plane crashes and hijackings and companies had to explain themselves for certain things. But again, nobody had tainted the food. I mean, we had had issues with, uh, you know, poison milk back in the 50s that killed children and you know there's all those types of things and then of course that led to changes and you know this is another example of they this case changed our lives going forward 100 percent. and you you talk about the case changing lives um we spoke with monica janice whose uh uncles and uh aunt died that day and her father Joseph was there to witness it his uh, brother Stanley and Teresa dying and um, you know has been haunted by it ever since and, and on the 40th anniversary of the murders she went into the grocery store and just looked looked around at everything that had a tamper proof seal on it and it's everything it's salad dressing it's sour cream it's yogurt it's peanut butter it's jelly and just imagine being a family member and you can't even walk into a grocery store without the legacy of your loved one's death being on full display it is a daily reminder to them and while we all benefit from it it's it's their heartache too it's it's their 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 sadness, their grief. They sacrificed their lives for our safety in a very yeah, simple term. Out. And it's terrible to say, but it is uh, a constant reminder for them every day because each person, you know, it's the six degrees of separation. It's not just the brother that was affected. It wasn't just, you know, everybody that knew somebody that knew somebody that knew them. I mean, it's all connected and i feel like when you have um a case such as this that goes unsolved for so long it does spawn conspiracy theories to a degree i mean we can talk about johnson and johnson recalling all that and then that also brings up the conspiracy oh well they recalled everything because they thought it might be within the you know fulfillment process and therefore they're trying to cover their own um you know behinds behind by doing that and you know of course we don't know that. How are we supposed to know that? You guys don't know that. You dive, you know, dove as deep into this case as probably anybody. And, you know, I think, what are your thoughts on uh, Johnson & Johnson doing, I don't know, just getting it off the shelves just in case it was something like that? Because either way, it was a smart move to do. I'll start and then Stacy jump in. So we know that Johnson Johnson and authorities uh, took a lot of heat for allowing Johnson Johnson uh, to, you know, they're, they, they were investigating at the time whether it could be a disgruntled Johnson and Johnson employer, disgruntled McNeil employer, past employee, and you're allowing this company to do the recall and test, uh, you know, millions of pills itself. It seemed a bit um, suspicious, but uh, we reported that Johnson and Johnson itself did turn in uh, two of the 
tainted bottles uh, from the recall to authorities. There were fingerprints that were examined uh, that uh, never went anywhere. Uh, but so they did co they they did cooperate in the investigation, uh, but that was certainly um, a suspicious decision. Yeah, I you know when I think about the the recall and, and whether it was a you know a move to get evidence you know off the shelves so to speak. Um, I go back to what the uh, Attorney General at the time of Illinois, Ty Fainer, he told us um, that when he, he knew very well that when he told people to throw out their Tylenol, they were possibly throwing out evidence. The alternative, he said, was letting people keep it in their medicine cabinets and risking death. And, you know, he, he weighed the two and he put he put, you know, the potential to save lives over the potential to save evidence. And so I, I, I look at, at the recall as, you know, a safety measure that was public safety measure. You know, I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, Johnson Johnson should have had the role they had in, in testing. Um, that's where, you know, eyebrows get raised, but, I think they were so overwhelmed at the time with, I mean, there were, you know, 31 million bottles that needed to be, <laughs> that were recalled, that needed to be tested. Pre-internet, you know, pre, 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 all this stuff, pre-internet, phone calls, you're calling yeah. people, fax maybe, did, did fax even exist in 1980? I don't even know. But, uh, I, I mean, but know, you're, but... yeah, you're Russian. I, I'm not going to hold them accountable for I mean, and does, does the FDA have the possibility in 1982 to, to test 31 million bottles? Like, I don't think so. Um, we've talked to public health officials in Chicago and Illinois. They didn't have the capacity to do that. So who was going to do it? You know, so. They test, you know, the testing of the recall pills was shared by the uh, FDA and different government labs and Chicago Health Department and um, and Johnson and Johnson and Johnson and Johnson will say that everything that um, uh, we tested you know there was a very secure process and uh, the last thing we wanted was things getting out on the black market and being resold so everything was burned uh, and that also is a controversial decision. That would definitely be a red flag for the conspiracy theories or theorists out there that are like, oh, you know, um, they destroyed Including it all. Including Jim Lewis. Oh. Including Jim Lewis. Christy talked to him. She can tell you a little bit oh, about Okay, it. I want to hear about this. So you talked to Jimmy. Stacy and I had tried to reach him throughout um, – our investigation and he used to talk all the time to the Chicago Tribune. He wrote us letters in the eighties that were used to help find him during a nationwide manhunt <laughs> when they were looking for him after they, uh, you know, connected him to the attempted extortion. And, uh, he did jailhouse interviews while he was waiting trial on attempted extortion. And, um, then he did later prison interviews when he was serving his, uh, he served about 13 years or less for the attempted extortion extortion in, a, in an old fraud case out of Kansas City. But um, he hasn't been giving interviews in several years, he, uh, at least since 2010. So we uh, finally decided to go out to Boston. 
and uh, knock on his door because he wasn't responding to us. So we went in June and uh, we had been told that you want to get him alone because, uh, you know, the wife will shut him up and that he will talk to you. And so we, we hung out and we tried to, to find him at some um, his local haunts. Like we were told he goes uh, to McDonald's in the morning and there's a local park. And uh, so we hung out there and we were told that he goes to, you know, this coffee shop or this mall. So we kind of just hung around for a few days and then never, never found him and, and then just knocked on the door. How and old is he at this point? Didn't yet. Didn't answer. He just this summer turned 76 in August. So, but we're told he's in good health and he goes out for daily walks. And uh, so we did uh, knock on his door um, during that June visit and he didn't answer, rang his bell. We faced, uh, what did we do, Stacey? We FaceTimed him, right? We kind of FaceTimed him, yeah. Yeah. So we left a letter and he never responded. So I went back uh, in August with a Tribune photographer uh, while Stacy was chasing other leads and, and finishing um, one of our chapters in, in, uh, for the newspaper stories. And um, the second day I was able to uh, find him. He was walking down the street uh, behind his condo, uh, Cambridge, uh, toward a zip car. So it, it wasn't the ideal situation because we had a photographer snapping photographs of him. So that wasn't wonderful. But uh, at first, um, and it was just a few short blocks, but um, he acknowledged that he um, had gotten our letter and that he wasn't going to talk to us and um, to basically told us to get away. And we just said, well, Mr. Lewis, you know, we're going to walk with you a little bit and ask you some questions. If you want to answer them, do. If not, you know, we understand. Uh, and he engaged a bit, you know, he denied being the, the Tylenol killer. He, he uh, asked what we had done about the Johnson Johnson conspiracy story and about them uh, destroying millions of, of capsules and evidence. And, um, he said that he'd been harassed for 40 years for something he didn't do and, um, and uh, you know, played the role of victim. So he wasn't what I expected. Uh, we, there hasn't been, he hasn't been photographed in years. He wasn't photographed during, the last time the Tylenol story blew up uh, was 2009 when they raided his condo. And he wasn't photographed during any of that. The last photographs we really saw of him was about 2007 and then 2010. So he'd always been clean shaven in the later years. Uh, but the man, when, when I saw him, it wasn't what I expected. He had the full uh, white beard and, and white hair. And, uh, you know, I don't know if he, you know, he knows it gets pestered by the media every anniversary. So maybe, I don't know if that was intent, intentional to look different or not, but he was polite, I will say. And um, I had high hopes that it was going to be, he was going to call and agree to sit down to be interviewed, but that did not happen. Uh, there's more to the interview too on, on the podcast and, and on the Tribune website. As a reporter, former television investigative producer uh, for Carl Monday out of Cleveland, Ohio, shout out to Carl. Uh, he's still uh, he's still at it, I believe. And uh, what does it take as a reporter to go and confront a possible suspect in a serial killing spree? I mean, that takes some, you know. Innocent until proven guilty, and I really um, didn't know what to expect. Stacey and I have both, have, you know, when Illinois had a death row, I've interviewed people on death row, and I, um, I just treat everybody 
the same, you know, uh, do no harm and but get to the truth. And um, we weren't going to just walk away when he said, leave me alone. We, we followed him. But he's also, uh, you know, a 76 year old man. I didn't want him to get injured and photographer taking pictures of him. So I kept saying, slow down, sir. We're, you know, we always identify ourselves right away. I had my Chicago Tribune badge on and I just tried to um, be upfront and direct and, um, but also, he hasn't been charged with, with a crime, with, the, with these murders. So um, it wasn't like I was going into a, a, a situation like in a prison, uh, which Stacey and I both have done, where someone's been convicted of a crime. And, you know, so I, I did just try to treat him as, uh, as I would anyone else. It's also a fairness issue, right? I mean, Christy, Christy, sure, she had the goal of getting the interview, but she also had to make sure that he knew the Tribune's doing this story. You have received the letter, you know, that we've been communicating to you with what we've uncovered, what we're going to be writing about. Are you aware of it? Do you want to talk about it? It's, it's a lot of stuff like that. It's, it's more like less like, you know, confronting him and just making sure he's given his opportunity and he knows what, what we're working on. And, and so by that standard, you know, she, she accomplished something great out there because she left knowing that he was aware of our project and he was aware of some of the allegations that might be included in the story and that he had the opportunity to respond if he so choose. I promised him I'd always be upfront with him. We both have promised him that. And we have, uh, we have um, nothing that has been, we published extensive, uh, I think we counted the lines at one point, uh, extensive pieces, serial style uh, writing in the Chicago Tribune about him. And uh, there should have been no surprises to James Lewis because we, um, you know, we reached out to him uh, so many times and told him everything that was going to be in there, hoping he'd speak to us. I have to say he looked different than I expected, but he sound, he has a very distinct uh, kind of Missouri drawl. And the minute he said, I knew, I knew it was him. Um, he, he has a, how would you describe it, Stacey? He has like a, a very distinctive Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I went to school in Missouri, so I always call it a Missouri drawl. <laughs> and he, he definitely, he has that. It's just, it's just super distinctive. As far as your guys' involvement with the families of the victims, um, now have you, like, has this become one of those cases where you've become close with them, with some of them, and, you know, you're able to share some of these, you know, insights and information? And, I mean, the whole fact that they had a 50-page, you know, PowerPoint presentation to say that they circumstantially could prosecute this guy and they didn't. I mean, what do the family members think of that? We've been very transparent. As we talked about in the beginning, people are at different points, right? Some of them asked us for the police reports we had on their loved one. And we did share those. It, it took a lot for us to get them, but we shared them because we felt like they had the right to, to know what we knew. Um, and we, we, you know, before the stories ran, we, we told them like, hey, this is, you know, not, you know, word for word or anything, but just there were no like real surprises. We, we sort of prepared them for 
um, a lot of the coverage related to their, to their loved one. And, um, you know, just as they're all different in where they are in their grief, they're all different on where they are in terms of the investigation. And some have given up hope. Some think Jim Lewis is not the, the Tylenol killer. Some think somebody out there knows something and this thing's going to pop at, at some day. And then there are some of them like Joe Janice, who has no idea where he falls on the spectrum because it changes constantly. He just, he told us that he, his parents died wanting to see the face of the person who destroyed their family. And, and now that's his hope too. And, yeah. So what are your thoughts on this particular case and who you think is the most potentially responsible individual? I'll let Christy answer that. I love the silence. I'm a journalist. Uh, I, I'm not a prosecutor or a, a homicide detective. So uh, while we believe we have uncovered uh, the, we believe we've uncovered um, the highlights of their evidence against James Lewis, and, and I would agree, it is a uh, a circumstantial case. Uh, there is no, you know, DNA. There is no uh, fingerprint connecting him. There is no witness. Uh, you know, there's no confession. He has always maintained his innocence. Uh, but, you know, he put the pieces of the puzzle together, as one investigator said, it all directs back to James Lewis. I don't, I always try to keep an open mind, and I, I don't know uh, if Lewis uh is innocent or guilty. Um, I, I don't know if um, Roger Arnold is uh, was a more viable suspect. This <clears throat> task force has been accused of of tunnel vision through the years. That they set their eyes uh, on on Lewis and never looked in the other way, and they they deny that. And there are um, there are other suspects that they investigated as well. Um, is it somebody whose name has never come out? Uh, you know, uh, we just got a tip this morning, an email from somebody uh, who uh, has a theory completely different than anything that has been said. So, so I don't, I don't know. Um, I, the question I'm, I'm more comfortable answering is: Will the prosecutors ever charge James Lewis? And um, you know, we're at 40 years. And they put out statements saying that they're very, it would be Cook County or DuPage County, right? Because murder is a state charge, it's not federal. And um, so it would either be DuPage County where two of the victims died or Cook County uh, where the remaining five did. And we know in Cook County, uh, they, our uh, prosecutor's office uh, is dealing with uh, surging violence in the city and murders and all sorts of serious felonies. They have a staffing problem there. They have a morale problem. And so uh, the likelihood of prosecuting it there um, seems remote to me. And I, I think Stacy uh, has some feelings on this as well. And in DuPage County, I think, uh, you know, DuPage County is a law and order county. There's less crime. And you've got uh, a prosecutor there now, Bob Berlin, who is a veteran prosecutor. Um, he's been state's attorney now for uh, several years. So I think that, you know, there's more, uh, I think they're looking at it a little harder. But I think that DuPage also likes, uh, they don't love, you know, 
circumstantial cases. They want the smoking gun. So it's a hard sell to prosecutors. And Berlin took a pass in 2012. So uh, we've heard that the case has not changed drastically uh, over the years. So um, I don't think all hope is lost if, if some are looking for an indictment of James Lewis. But I think that it's, it's, a, it's a hard sell for prosecutors. Well, it's very uh, thoughtful answer and uh, very well uh, well done as a uh, journalist as a good journalist answer. I you know very much down the middle and uh, you're very uh, that's it's, it's the, the truth. truth and it is I, it really, it really people is who the truth. jump the gun and say it's this that or the other they don't know any better. I mean you're doing the right thing, Stacy. What are your thoughts on this? Because Christy did bring you up bring you up in that that you had thoughts on. Yeah, I, you know, Christy and I um, share the same view on this. We are, it's not our job, um, nor should it be to solve a case or to demand charges. Um, we fight for transparency and for the public good and the public, an informed public. And I think we've done that in this case. We've, we've, we've laid out what's currently going on in the investigation and we've laid out why investigators feel the way they do about the case. And then I think it's, it's up to the public to decide, you know, where they, where they fall on it. Um, we presented the facts and people can make their own decisions. That's the, if we've, if we've done that, if we've done that well, then we've done our jobs. Yeah. Yeah. There is a call by some, um, including, uh, a daughter, one of the victims that, you know, as long as this is an open case, they can't get access to uh, certain documents and police reports and things uh, chronicling the, you know, the last moments of their loved one's life and, and uh, the investigation uh, that resulted from their, their murder. So there's a call that, you know, if you're never going to charge this, let's, uh, change the classification of this from an open case to a closed so that we can get access to some of these documents, these police reports. So uh, that is interesting, uh, an interesting thing that's happened in this 40th anniversary that I don't recall seeing at the 25th. Do you, Stacy? calls for releasing more documents? and No, in fact, the 25th anniversary is when documents actually got shut down. Um, cause they reopened the, they reopened the case with the, with the second task force. So, um, they, and they never reopened it. You used to be able to FOIA this from the FBI in the early 2000s and you, and you can't, um, anymore. It does feel like time is running out. And that was one of the things that, uh, one of the motivating factors that Stacy and I felt, um, propelled us to want to go down this journey, uh, this reporting path these last several months, because, you know, time is not a friend to a homicide investigator. Memories fade. Witnesses move away. They die. Uh, documents get lost. We found that in this case. Uh, so uh, 40 years, we've seen uh, prosecutions for uh, older cases than that. And, um, but it's, it's, it's a long time and, and there's a lot of hurdles you have to, uh, get over to prosecute a case of 40 years, years, chain of custody issues, things like that. So it just felt like 
the 40th anniversary was was a, a time to really examine this case and um you know time's running out yeah and and did you have any final thoughts i mean that is kind of a final thought on it but stacy did you have any final thoughts on uh you know the investigation and uh actually before yeah, before you answer that i i was wondering about that about the victims wanting that to be closed if they got those files and they were able to find something that was i mean are they able, are they able to reopen the case then at that point or is it you know because that's the only thing that I would be hesitant of as an investigator, if it was like. Sure. Um, well, back in the 2000s and the late 90s, when they did release records, the case was in an inactive status, um, which allows for, you know, when, when a law enforcement agency releases documents, they don't basically give you the file and say, take what you want, right? They withhold all kinds of stuff for all kinds of reasons. But now you try to get a document, um, especially from the FBI in this case, and you get met with like a, you know, no can do, it's, it's an open case. So they don't have to close it to be more transparent. And they can be more transparent and give answers to people. So another generation doesn't die waiting for answers about how their loved ones were, were killed. Time, time is running out for these families too, right? Uh, Joe Janice is 72 years old. His, his parents spent the rest of their lives grieving the loss of their sons. Um, so as much as time runs out in the case, time runs out for the families too. I can't imagine they'd ever close the cases if it's unsolved, given its notoriety. And I don't, I don't know that anyone would really um, advocate for that. Uh, but just more transparency with releasing uh, certain documents uh, might give some, I don't, I don't know if closure exists, but it, you know, it might give some answers to some of the families about some of the questions they've had. Yeah, and that is a very interesting um, way to kind of wrap things up. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a case that's open, and they're still investigating it, and there's kind of been this final push. I don't want to say final because it's, you know, murders never, you know, statute never runs out but they're giving a heavy push being the 40th with the families getting older it totally makes sense and i think that with what you've laid out in you know the last hour and a half about the case i'd say uh, people can make up their own mind but if you do a little digging uh, speaking of which, where would somebody, if they wanted to dive into this case, where would they find your articles and your podcast? Because those are pretty much the most important thing if they want to keep going. You can read our articles at chicagotribune.com uh, forward slash Tylenol murders. And you can listen to our podcast, Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever you listen to this one, you can find us there, too. Awesome. Awesome. And you guys are both still uh, full-time reporters and, uh, you know, all that good yep. stuff. And uh, what's the, what's next on the agenda? What's the next big project? A vacation. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> Great answer. <laughs> 
So how are you going to start with the who, what, where, when, and why on that one? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> who? Me, Christy. <laughs> uh, how about you, Christy? Are you feel, you're happy with how everything turned out? I am. We didn't uh, anticipate that the week of our launch that they were going to uh, go back to Boston and uh, try to interview Lewis for the first time and believe the last time they interviewed him was 2013, so almost a decade. And we found out about it um, days before we were tipped off and we um, reported it. Serendipity. Right before we Serendipity. launched. Serendipity. So, yeah, it was, it's a while. So, I don't know that we're, you know, we don't know if there'll be another um, chapter to come in the weeks ahead, uh, but we're still digging to find out. Uh, more about what he said uh, during those six hours of taped interviews and um, what the next steps are. We know that there's still, uh, we've always been told that this case isn't going to be made on, on DNA, uh, that they, they do have DNA profiles in three of the eight tainted bottles. And, um, but, you know, back then people weren't wearing masks when they were handling things or wearing gloves. It was a different time. And they didn't really even realize what DNA. Uh, they really had no idea. <laughs> right, right. So, um, but they are testing things still. Uh, so there's going to be, uh, we're going to continue following and seeing uh, what happens All right. with the case and if anything does. But yeah, vacation sounds nice too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stacy, do you have any final things to say? Or are you uh, you ready for your vacation and... Uh, <laughs> and to to move on to the next thing or an amended episode when you get the killer. Yeah, no, that's what I'll say. If there's news that breaks in this, um, we'll be back uh, on the podcast and in the paper. So check us out. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you guys so much for joining Who Killed. Well, thank you. I mean, this is, thank you, You Bill. bet. This is a huge case and you guys have really put in a lot of effort and a lot of work hours upon hours traveling 150 plus interviews i mean that's uh you know the expression deep dive is overused but it's the definition of what you guys did so uh, kudos to you and uh great job thank you so much for coming on the show thank you thanks for having us thank you Thank you so much to the Chicago Tribune reporters, Christy Kotowski and Stacy St. Clair, for joining Who Killed this past two weeks and discussing their podcast, Unsealed, the Tylenol Murders. Again, you can find that wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And again, as they mentioned, they have articles that go along with their episodes that are also posted in the Chicago Tribune. So it is definitely a case that is still active and, again, unsolved for close to 40 well it is 40 years so uh let's just uh, hope that they are able to uh, garner some new scientific evidence from some of this evidence and uh we'll go from there but until next time uh you know i drop new episodes every friday next week i will have a brand new episode with author david domine talking about a murder in Louisville that is pretty wild and crazy and it is uh, been put into book form so definitely check that one out and again thank you so much for listening if you want to help donate to the show you can do so via Venmo with my username at Bill-Huffman-3 or you can leave a review and 
that's always great too because it does shine a spotlight on cases that I have been covering and the unsolved cases most importantly. So again, until next week, stay healthy and be safe. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing; she'd invested three hundred thousand dollars with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.